Welcome to Faith at the Front Counter. I'm Ikiko. And I'm Savannah. Today we'll be talking about an opinion page from the Scientific American written by R. Douglas Fields titled, Neuroscience and Psychology Suggests No Surprise Victory for Trump This Time. We will also interview Mr. Collins. And lastly, we're going to be talking about a good human story. So let's get started. So we wanted to talk about this article because we're both counseling students. And as I mentioned before, it's from the Scientific American who for the first time in I think 175 years has um, recommended Biden. They've never made a recommendation for uh, a president. Um, so they're recommending Biden because he, he looks at data and science as a guiding principle, which is great. But, um, so the article talks about um, how we are, well, well, let me back up a bit. In our program, I think one of the first things we heard um, and that we were gonna learn about was neuroscience. So anytime I see that word now, I'm like, oh, interesting. I kind of know something. I know a yeah, little bit about it. <laughs> we're clued in, we're clued yeah, in. We are clued in. So we're learning about neuroscience and what this article explains is that our brain is having two different ways of making a decision. So when we're presented with something, one is a conscious planned way of making a decision. And the other is an automatic driven by emotion and mostly fear way of making decisions. So the author describes Trump's campaign as one that uses an emotion-based decision-making process. And that he's using in 2020, but he's also used in 2016. And so the author states, Fields, fear-driven appeals will likely persuade fewer voters this time because we overcome fear in two ways, by reason and experience. He believes that Trump was a surprise victor last time because people base their vote on emotion. This time, voters will be able to articulate why they're voting for Trump. So essentially, that's the essence of the article. So what are your thoughts, Savannah? One, I think it's really interesting because, again, as you mentioned, we're both really interested in, in the neuroscience side. Mm -hmm. um, and I do. It's tough. I think we all hope to not be driven by fear. Um, one of my mantras is may my choices reflect my hopes and not my fears. Um, I think a lot of us resonate with that. We don't want to be compelled by fear. We would rather be compelled by better things than that. Um, but it's also really understandable. Our brains go into fight, flight, or freeze kind of. Um, and you know, if you're afraid it's hard to think outside of that. Like your prefrontal cortex loses a lot of reasoning ability. Right. Um, and so I think it does make sense, but the article points out that at a certain point, reason and experience 
overcome that fear after a certain amount of time or just maybe a certain amount of experience, it will override that fear a little bit better. And so to me, it makes sense that Trump isn't able to press on people's fears quite as much this time around. And they've had three years of seeing his behavior and um, they're not just using sound bites to make their decision, which right. you just listen to those sound bites. Um, those can be very anxiety provoking. Um, I know when we were at the kickoff conference and I wish I remembered what the percentage was, but one of the psychologists that was presenting, he said something like, I want to say it might be higher than this. So, but it's high. It's something like 80%. How we make decisions, 80% of that is based on emotion. Yeah. When he said that, I'm like, I had to really think of it. I'm like, really? Like, so when I'm going to buy a car or when I'm going to, like most of it essentially is our emotions around that car. And that kind of makes sense when you think about advertising, for example. Right. It's something they use, like whether it's love or, you know, that's an often thing that they'll use or being sexy or whatever, like you're going to have status. It's more about a feeling than saying this car has this, you know, these mechanical things and right. that won't last for 30 years, you know, if you drive it. And I think we'd like to tell ourselves that even though we're making decisions out of 80% emotion, I think we'd like to tell ourselves that it's way more fact-based and logic-based than that. And right. I think we can learn to include more of that and balance those decision-making capacities out. Um, but I think it is almost helpful to just realize how much emotions drive our decisions. Because if you have that information, you can really stop and think then about how, what emotion is driving me here. Mm -hmm. If you don't even know that emotion is driving it, driving the decision, you can't step back and evaluate other options. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking um, when the, the author talked about the fact that it's not going to be a surprise the essentially the Trump voters, because mm. last time, I think there was a fair amount of people who were shocked that Trump ended up winning um, and then couldn't necessarily articulate very well um, why they voted for him because it was based on emotion. What he's saying is that if Trump, if people vote for Trump, they will have you know, that experience, they'll have a reason why rather than it just being emotion. I'm not sure about that. I'm, I mean, I kind of feel like he, the fear part of it is still working and he's actually using that to have, have people make decisions to vote for him. I'm with you. I think to this article's point, I think people have gained more reason and experience to outweigh their fear. Um, However, I don't think that's the case for everyone, obviously. Um, I think it might be enough to shift the tide toward Biden, but that doesn't mean that every single American is going to be making a decision based out of reason and experience, whether voting for Biden or Trump. Right. 
Well, and I think if you talk about fear of not voting for Trump, I mean, I've heard a lot of older um, white Republicans say that they're not going to vote for Trump. And a huge piece of it is the pandemic Mm. and how he has um, responded to the pandemic. And that's a fear of wanting to live, right? Right. It is kind of interesting how those intersect because you think, well, they're taking reasoning ability (laughs) while Trump didn't do well with the pandemic and they're taking their experience. This has been a hard year because of the pandemic. So there's a little bit of that going on, but you're right. There's also a fear of, well, I don't want this to continue. I'm afraid of what this looks like if we continue down this path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought also in light of our reading this week, um, have you read the FOSHA book? The, yes. And what are, what are your thoughts? I thought it really connected on a different in a different way about what this he's talking about, how essentially, essentially the affect is very powerful. Yeah, and, it drives our lives and adds meaning to our lives. Right. And in order to actually heal, you have to get to the, address the affect, essentially. Mm-hmm. You have to go there. Um, whereas maybe in the past, people might have thought counseling was more a cognitive process where you're talking about like past experiences and, and all of right. that. But, and just reasoning, like, well, this isn't working, so let's try this instead. Like a very logical approach. Right. And so I felt like, um, yeah. It is really interesting. And I think, I mean, we still have yet to see how it'll play out. And that'll be a fascinating piece of the puzzle. Um, but I'm curious to see what my thoughts are on when we know who wins the election, looking at it through this lens, through the neuroscience lens, through the fear lens, that sort of thing. Now, you talked about that guest speaker that we had at the, the kickoff. And yes. Said, yeah. What did he say um, that was really so, relevant to this article? Yeah. So at the beginning of Makiko's and my program, um, we got to hear a speaker, Donald Miller, if any of you have heard of him. He's written several books, um, but Donald Miller talked about the 2016 election and how he wasn't completely shocked that Trump won in 2016. Um, and his reasoning was that Trump had a better story and not just a better story, but a story and that Clinton didn't really have a story that she was narrating for the country. And um, the story that Trump was putting out to the American people was that you have a lot of reasons to be afraid. You should be very afraid and I can come rescue you and I can come take care of quote unquote, take care of all the things that you're afraid of. Oh, you're afraid of illegal immigrants. Don't worry. I'll take care of that. Oh, you're afraid that abortion will stay legal? Don't worry, I'll take care of that. You're afraid of the Democrats? I'll take care of that. Um, So we had this driving narrative, again, rooted in fear, 
that I think that Donald Miller at least points to as um, what he believes is a large reason Trump won. Uh, and he just didn't see Clinton having that strong of a narrative that she had created. Yeah, I, I kind of think that she, I feel like she thought she was going to win. And, oh, yeah. And, and therefore didn't like, I, I feel like I see such a difference between her and Biden. I feel like Biden is like running <laughs> to the finish line because he's yeah. afraid that what happened in 2016 is going to happen in 2020, even though it doesn't he actually, seem like he's coasting. No. I mean, I feel like she was coasting and I think she assumed that certain groups were going to vote for her mm -hmm. and he is not making any assumptions because he probably has PTSD, like a lot of the Democrats <laughs> and they think that, oh my gosh, flashbacks from 2016, but he actually has a larger um, percentage lead over Trump than Hillary Clinton ever did. So oh, much larger. Yeah. What is interesting is that, and I think we're all guilty of this, but it's hard to read statistics and it's hard to understand odds. Um, and if we don't know how to read the data, it can get confusing. And I think a lot of people point to 2016 and say, all of the polls were wrong. See, Trump won, Hillary lost, all of the polls were wrong. Actually, Trump's win was in the margin of error. <laughs> it was within the margin of error. And that being the case in 2016, I don't think that's what we're seeing in for 2020. Um, I think Donald Trump is quite a significant way outside of the margin of error for Biden. Yeah. Can I, can I just say, though, she did win 3 million votes of the popular vote. She like, did. And it just appalls me. I'm aghast that because we have the electoral college that yeah. we don't have the president most of us voted for. Three million people voted and wanted her as president. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. the electoral college is, that is a can of worms. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. It's very frustrating. We are so excited because our, our next segment, we have Mr. William Collins. And we have been so excited anticipating your visit with us um, to Faith at the Front Counter. Oh, if we'd like to hear a little bit about your background, where and where, when you were born, where you grew up, that sort of thing. Okay, I was uh, born in 1936 in St. Louis, Missouri. Spent all of my life there until I was 25. Went to high school, elementary school. Uh, worked at uh, different jobs, uh, bellhop and truck driver. And my final job was with my father, who was a business owner. I was a bartender for years with him. And uh, wow. like I said, I graduated from high school and uh, got married young. And I had two kids, a, a son, which is the firstborn, and a daughter, William the third. I'm a, also a, a junior. And I had a William the third, and in our family we have a William Austin Collins fifth. So we have five generations of William Austin Collins. Wow! And so let's see. And uh, then uh, uh, I got married at a very young age, right out of high school, and we spent oh, about five years in 
looked up one morning and we didn't even know each other. We was we grew up, I guess, and but we had a beautiful relationship and have two beautiful children. My oldest boy will be sixty six uh, next month, and my daughter will be sixty five next December. She's still in St. Louis. My oldest boy has retired from uh, the Air Force, twenty year retired a master sergeant. And he's out here at Rosamond, which is just north of Lancaster. And I uh, have 17 grandchildren and wow. 15 great-grandchildren. Wow. Gosh, that's amazing. And uh, that's about it. Uh had a very young uh, uh, life. I had a great life. Parents were uh, very, uh, uh, we, uh, we were a middle-class family. I didn't want for much. I got everything I needed. I got some things I didn't need, I didn't get. But uh, my mother was very active in uh, in the community. She uh-huh. was PTA when I was a kid in elementary school. My grandmother, which was we were very proud of, in the 30s, she was a, a landowner in a little town outside of uh, St. Louis, about 12 miles northeast of uh, St. Louis, called Kenlock, an all-black community. Ah. And she had, and if I look back, <coughs> excuse me, I look back and I try to visualize how large the property was. So I'm thinking it was a little longer than a football field and a little wider than a football okay. field. So maybe, maybe they set 60, 70 yards wide and 120, 130 yards long. And she would rent out the land and people would plant corn and I guess they paid her. I was a little boy, had to go out there on the weekends and but yeah, which I didn't want to do because all my friends were in the city and there wasn't much out there to do as a kid, I thought. But then we <laughs> had cornfields and apple trees and she had chickens and and uh, one, one time she had a hall. So I had a very, very enjoyable life and her house was uh, that she owned, she had a house that had no water, no running water. Uh, no electricity wow. until the, maybe I was about six or seven, and uh, no no heat. You know, had a wood stove, and she cooked on a a wood stove. Right. Didn't have electric uh, and gas. She cooked and everything she cooked, cooked meals and everything. The only thing she never did was bake. I imagine it would be kind of hard to control a wood oh. stove with you know. Oh with, yeah, that's true. But other than that, I had a very uh, young life. My father was a very good provider, so didn't want much, and uh, didn't you know? And all in the community I grew up in, we it was we were segregated. It was a very uh, non-integrated society that I grew up in in St. Louis, and uh, and uh, uh, so we we had a good life, and me and my sister and I. Well, Brown versus Board of Education, that happened in 1954. And so we kind of wanted you to reflect on that. How old were you when that passed? I graduated from high school. That was my year that I graduated from high school in 1954. Oh, my gosh. uh, I knew about it, but, you know, it didn't have anything in St. Louis. It was no effect because there was no white kids came into the community. Our school stayed black. And then uh, I was talking to my son uh, uh, this afternoon, and I was asking him because five years later, which would be in 1959, he went into elementary school, and it was all black. 
So within five years, all of the white people had moved out of the neighborhood and his school was white and he had, I mean, black. And uh, he had a few white teachers, but other than that, everything was basically the same for years. And like he said, he didn't have any white students until he went to college. Same way it was with me until I went to college. So what were your thoughts at that time when that passed and the United States went through desegregation? And what do you think about it now? Well, then, like I was saying, it, it didn't have any effect. It, we, I just looked at it now. We didn't even talk about it. Uh, it was that I remember, you know, it was a long time ago. So it really wasn't a big deal because it really didn't infect, uh, uh, affect our living. Uh, we, it was the same. Nothing changed. Uh, the school stayed the same. I, was, I went to school. Everything in my neighborhood, everything in my school, everything in my life was black. No no nothing, no everything. And then when my father bought his first home, uh, it, 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 and that was, I don't know what year that was, it's been so long, but it, like, I don't need to go in it. That book, whatever, it just, nothing ever really changed un, until, uh, uh, well, maybe when I came to California. But up until that time, there was no drastic change in our lifestyle in St. Louis, you know, no no, no difference in the school. Like I said, when, when uh, I graduated and a year later, I don't remember if it was 55 or 56, I went to a community college and there it was integrated. But uh, I wasn't much of a student in school. So with that combination and then with the racism in the school, with, you know, the teachers didn't change, the students didn't change. And uh, some of the students that probably wanted to communicate were didn't because of the environment. So I didn't last long in, in, the, in the community college. What were your thoughts when it passed? Were you elated? Were you excited? Um, was your community excited? I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember having a lot of conversation about it because, you know, uh, a lot of things that had, had transpired in our, in our community with nothing happening, you know, oh, sure. uh, uh, we had, we had, uh, things that pass laws and, and, and things, it's some kind of way they would keep it the same, you know, it, nothing really changed. So didn't have a lot of great expectation. I didn't. Right. Cause the law was, had been passed and then it's not like anything was changing though in your life. Nothing changed. The school system stayed the same with, with, with the time I was in there. And then, like I said, I checked with my son and he said, by the time he went to kindergarten, it was back like it was when I was going to school. So. No difference. Yeah. And then so we I, weren't, wasn't too, at that time, wasn't too political. We didn't put too much stock in politics, you know. We, we just survived and did what best we could in our own community. See, in the neighborhood we lived in, we had doctors and lawyers because we were forced to live in a certain area. We couldn't move west, I mean north, and we couldn't move south. So we could either move from east to west, and we stayed in that area. So all of our community was was right there with us. We had our own restaurants, we had our own businesses, uh, and whenever we moved into a neighborhood that was what they call white flight. So we all we took over nice theaters and and all of that. But I had an opportunity. My mother was a very fair lady and she took up my me and my sister uh, to the theaters in St. Louis that were white only, big theaters. I remember going to the Fox and uh 
as a kid, they didn't know that we were black, you know. So she would just take us there to show us what, what the other side lived like. We didn't go on a regular basis because she was raised and went to the same high school I went to. And it was only three high schools in the city. Sumner, Charles Sumner, who was an abolitionist that was attacked in Congress by a Southern segregationist with a cane. That's where the high school name came from, Charles Sumner. And then there was a high school called Bashan. I don't know the history of Bashan. Now, my father went to Bashan. And then there was a technical school called Washington, George Washington. And those are the only schools we went to. And it, as uh, black people would move into a neighborhood, the whites would move out. So we ended up mm-hmm. with their schools and their movies and, and uh, whatever was there. It was the nice things, you know. <laughs> so we benefited from that. So we had our own, our own community and we were extremely happy with it. You know, of course, you were denied a lot, you know, like uh, they had restaurants there. One I never will forget, uh, Steak and Shake and, and Parkmore. We couldn't go in them. But now going back to St. Louis and it's strange, you can go there, you know, in those sands and all of the people are going. And it's strange for me to go there and see the places and uh, White Castle. We couldn't eat in White Castle, which I always thought thrown strange to the young car hops, I guess they would call them, would bring our food out to the car put it on the, with the trace, but we couldn't go inside and eat. And it was a sign saying black or white or none of that. It's just understood. You didn't go in them places. And that was the way life was. And uh, like I said, we were, we were content. Uh, when, when, the commu- when the city progressed, we progressed. It was always behind, but we moved forward. What did you think when you couldn't go into the restaurant as a kid? Or like, did you ever ask your parents about it? Or did you just go, this is how it is? We, yeah, we knew why we couldn't go. Oh, you know, yeah. it, it, it was just that you know we were we were second class citizens. We were we were <clears throat> wasn't expected to go in there. We weren't good enough to go in there. We knew all of that. You know, I mean, it was it was obvious. I mean, you could ride down the street or 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 and and, and you would get the look from the people. I mean, one morning, I, one evening, day or one day or something, I was standing on the corner downtown St. Louis, and a, a white woman come up to my mother. And say, I forgot exact words to use, but basically what she said is, aren't you afraid with all these darkies walking around? And like I said, my mother was a very fair lady. And she turned her and said, I'm one of them darkies you're talking about. So we knew what was going on. It's just that that was the way it was, you know, and uh, which made us dislike white people. I never had a white friend uh, in St. Louis until I was, or oh, until, wait, let's see, about 1964. And that's another story. I worked in the Italian. Uh, yeah, that's my. Oh mother. yeah. Oh, that's your mother. She's white. That's Nuwasa. Yeah. Harding is her name, and that's, she had blue eyes. Oh, she could. Yeah. She, she was born in Mississippi, <laughs> and like her mother was the grandmother that owned the owned the uh, the, the property owner in, in in Kenlock. So I came from a very progressive family. My mother was a, uh, an activist and my father was a successful businessman for over 40 years. And I hear you are a veteran and I was curious when and where you were stationed. Okay, I was drafted in, ni- in 1960. Yeah, 1960. I took basic and AIT at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And then we went to uh, Fort Hood, Texas. I was in the first cast, first a, a troop, first cast, first Army Division at Fort Hood, Texas. I spent my balance of my uh, military career with them. I only was there in the military for two years. 
uh, Sue's mother and I, by this time, we were married. And we had our her, her older brother, Glenn, and we were, she was there with me in Texas in the army. And uh, we had the one boy then. And uh, that was nice that she was there. And and uh, another great lady in our family. I have, I've been blessed with beautiful, strong ladies in my family. Mm. And let's see, I, uh, while I was in the service, I participated in the Cuban crisis. That was my outfit they sent to ah. Florida. Khrushchev and Russia had those missiles down in Cuba. Luckily, they got them out of there. And uh, all we did was had an ex- extended training period. We left tech. We were in the field because like this new division, First Army Division, had been recently reactivated. It had been demand for a while. And we were out in the field training to, you know, with our tanks and things. And then they brought us in one day. We had no idea what was going on. And we made our powers attorney and uh, packed up all our personal belongings. And fortunately, uh, Sue's mother had gone back to St. Louis because uh, winter was coming and we didn't have money to buy clothes for our uh, son. So she went back to to St. Louis. And so when we got shipped out, fortunately, she was in St. Louis because a lot of families were left there on their own. And we had this, we were all folks. We didn't, I didn't have enough rank to have a billeting on folks. I was just a PSC. And then uh, we looked, we took a train all the way from Fort Hood, Texas, down and spent one uh, time at Fort Hood, Georgia. And then we went into Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where we stayed at Gulfstream Racetrack, waiting to find out what uh, Castro was going to do over there with the missiles. And fortunately, he got him out of there and we came back home. You were in the reserves during the Watts riots. Um so what were your experiences and thoughts during that time? Okay. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I was discharged, I had a, a reserve obligation. They assigned me to an outfit in San Bernardino. We were living in Pomona at the time. <laughs> and uh, a, a fellow from the National Guard there in Pomona had come by to try to recruit me to go to the National Guard. Well, I told him, I said, well, I want to get out because I wasn't military. I didn't like the military at all. And I was telling him, I said, well, I'm going to try to get out of it. So he said, if you can't, consider coming with the National Guard, which ended up, that's where I ended up with the National Guard. So I had been in there, I think the, the, the riots were in 62 or something. But I had, within a year, I had made platoon sergeant. And because uh, I had prior military and knew all of the ropes of tanks and everything. And uh, so we were getting ready to go up to, uh, Camp Roberts up in St. Louis Obispo on the week for our, for our uh, what is it they call, I forgot it's called, where we spent a week or uh, something in summer camp. And uh, we were all ready to go and loaded on the trunks and went the trucks when the, uh, when the riots broke out. So they didn't know what to do as we hung around there in Pomona for, oh, maybe six hours. And then they decided to, we would just get on the trucks and go up to Northern California, which we did. As soon as we got there, they turned around and brought us back down to Southern California. And they assigned us to an area in Los Angeles. Like I said, I was new to California, so I wasn't familiar with Los Angeles at all. Uh-huh. And all I remember was a Felix Chevrolet dealer there somewhere. And then they had a, a little island in a little street where you could pull over in front of uh, storefronts and park at a diagonal angle. But uh, we were, I was, like I said, I was a sergeant. So our job was to 
patrol the uh, house, that, that's the uh, perimeter, and keep uh, uh, sightseers from going in. So mm-hmm. con- I wasn't really into part of where all the burning and, and the looting and all of that was going on, fortunately. Right. I had a, you know, uh, well, that's come up later. Tell you about the bullets, like you told me about the bullets and how you... Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> we had some gun hole, well, we had a gun hole lieutenant that was always trying to be John Wayne or something. So I, I had, we had a three-quarter ton vehicle, and I had six men, the driver, and myself. Uh, and we were riding around, and uh, we had weapons. But I had all the ammo. And in my pocket, so if something had went up, uh, I would have blew up like a candlelight. You know, I had all of the the ammo in, with me. I didn't let anybody ride around with ammo because you never know. You know, the least little thing could spark a big thing. So, right. But uh, we didn't have any problems. Uh, no, no skirmishes. We stayed in the school elementary schoolyard when we slept, and fortunately, I didn't get into the middle where all of the the big stuff was going on. And that's, those kind of things happened with me all my life. Uh, things that could have been worse uh, for some reason uh, didn't, didn't get worse. So, and then we came back from that and, and, oh, let me tell you this. Now I said that in, when I was in St. Louis, the very first white friend I had was when I, one year before I left to go into the army. I worked at a, a Italian bar in a pizza place. Geno's, my brother-in-law, who played professional baseball with the St. Louis Cardinals, he and he and Gino were partners in this uh, this business, and uh, they wanted me to ten bar. And Carlo, the co- young man that was fixed the pizzas in the back, he and I got to be real good friends. My first white friend in all of my life. I'd never had one. I was what 24, 25 years old then. Wow. But when I came to California, all of a sudden now I'm the only black. I was the only black person in the National Guard. The first one, not the first one, wow. I don't think. But I was the only one in there. So consequently, uh, by me being the only one in the Guard and we come back and the state handed out medals, they gave me a medal. <laughs> I guess because of me being the only one, only black in the group, they said we ought to give him, give him something, you know. <laughs> so, so they gave me a medal. I have it up on my wall with my, with my military pictures. So uh, proud wow. of that medal. And it was in the Progress Bulletin, the newspaper, the picture of when, when uh, we were sitting on the side of a tank, me and uh, another sergeant and a lieutenant, and they gave each one of us a medal. And it's, it's in the, in the mili- uh, National Guard archives about that medal. But uh, again, uh, wow. that, that experience with the National Guard was, was an experience. And I only spent, well, I spent three years in the National Guard and I got out of that. What were your thoughts about the Watts riots? It was, it was, it was, it was strange, you know, uh, uh, the riots itself, uh, you know, I did, the reason it started was, was something that we had been going through all of our existence in this country ever since the, at Virginia, when the first Blackfoot hit the state. And so that was to be expected. Now, when, they, when, the, when the riots started, you know, they'd had riots before. And uh, uh, it was just one of those things. And, and the second riot, I was working downtown. I, I worked at the LA Times when, the, when they found uh, the officers for that. Rodney. 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 Right. Yeah, that thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that was it. And, and 
some some parts of it I, I felt was justified and some parts were unjustified, which the thing was that where where I would say at the time it was going on, why are why are they burning up their own places? Why are we all why are we destroying our own? But then I realized, well, we couldn't get out of there and it was anger, you know, you can't you can't destroy anything if you can't get out of where you are. And of course the businesses that were being destroyed were you know, big business. Same thing happened in St. Louis and Ferguson. I happened to be there when that started too. Me oh, and my wow. cousin. Wow. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I've been in a lot of riots. <laughs> Not participating, just just right. there. Now but, some people uh, some people hmm? would call the riots. I've heard some people call the riots protests. Like even the Watts riots, even the Rodney King riots, that those were actually protests. Yes. And that, I, I, and, and I feel people, the same way about that. Okay. But 90% of all of these things are protests. Right. And then we have elements that turn it into the right. other There's things. The but and then the news media wants to focus on that instead right. of the other 95% that are legally protesting, which pisses me off. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 With you on that. <laughs> so... Kind of along that note, what do you see as the similarities and the differences between some of the civil rights movement in the 60s and the civil rights movement now? Um, what similarities and differences do you see kind of between these two different yeah. eras? Well, let's start with the 60s first. See, also in the 60s, the war was going on in Vietnam. So that was also part of the protest. So that was a, a billing point. And then there were civil rights going on at the same time. And then we had a marvelous speaker in Dr. Martin Luther King. He could make everything simple and understood using Jesus's parables and things like that. But uh, let's see now, uh, you know, we had had demonstrations and things before, but the difference in, in 60s was that we had white people participating. Now we had black people that had but uh, protest and even in St. Louis and uh, they would come in and say, okay, if, it, if they didn't interrupt it and stop it all together, they would try to say they would negotiate, they would negotiate and then nothing changed. Just like the, the school thing uh, up until latter in, in, the, in your education. And uh, so that was mostly it. But with that war, with all of the people protesting, these protests seemed to came, come together and then uh, when Dr. King went uh, against the war, that brought the the voting right thing, and that brought in the the the, the uh, all of the civil rights things. And then by Kennedy getting killed, and 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 Lyndon Johnson having the power with Congress that he did, he was able to pass laws. But mainly because of of uh, Caucasian uh, white people and the Caucasian white people participating. Uh, in the demonstrates or the uh, protests. That's basically what started, because that brought attention to it. Oh, what's the boy's name that just died? The po that was Floyd. No, no, in the politician that walked across the bridge and. Oh, oh, John oh. Lewis. Who? John Lewis. Right. Thank you. Thank there you. you. My mind went blank. Don't get eighty-four. Whatever. You do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just got lucky, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> and see that that young man 
brought about a lot of ideas to our people, my people, mm-hmm. that his strength and his ideas, not only the, 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 uh, the walk across the bridge, but I just found out, oh, maybe a couple of months ago, that when the, they had the interstate bus travel, when they, they, the, the, they, couldn't, they couldn't segregate riders on the bus, he and two other fellas, he and another fella, got on a Greyhound bus by themselves, no cameras, no publicity, and tested it out going through the South. Now, that took courage. Mm-hmm. Now, going across the bridge with, five, with hundreds of people, that took courage also. But just them two, because like he said, once that driver got off the bus and went inside, they had no idea what was going to come out of that place that, that where he went in. You wow. know, so he was, he was a, a, to me, uh, uh, and a, a lot of people, would brought the whole thing to a position of thought in my mind. Mm-hmm. And then from that, in the 60s, and then when, uh, you know, uh, the, the South had always been Democrat because of Abraham Lincoln. There's no way that the South was going to be a Republican after the Civil War. But now when when uh, the Civil Rights Movement started coming in in the 60s, all of a sudden, the South went South. Now, why? I mean, went to the Republican. I, my question is, why is that? So then we had the Southern strategy and all of this business. But by this time, we had voting rights. We had uh, people, uh, well, King was killed. Edgar Mevers was killed. Uh, Louise Hills, a lady from New Jersey that was driving uh, 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 voters, uh, participants back and forth. She was killed. Uh, we had the three civil rights workers killed. And see, all of that brought attention to it all around the world. That's what changed it all around the world. When the world could see what we had been telling them, black people had been telling them all along, you know, but they, you know, they knew, but they didn't want to believe us. So that was racism. Anytime people tell you, like we tell them, that we have been mistreated by the police forever. My father had that talk with me at a very young age. You have to talk to your son because, you know, they feel strong and they, you know, they want to stand up to this. Sometimes you have to bow your head, you know, whether you want to or not. So my father had that talk with me. I had that talk with my son. Now, white America make that wrong. But actually what you're doing is telling them to respect the law. Now, what's wrong with that? But they'll change that. Uh, the, the man that uh, uh, Kaepernick on the football team, what more vulnerable position can you be in on your knee with your head bowed in protest? But the president turned that against him with the flag. It had nothing to do with the flag. They always do that. They change it to something else. Black lives matter. Well, white lives matter too. Of course. But we're only concerned about black lives matter because that's who's being killed. Well, that's another story. It was the 60s and uh, it was a beautiful time. That's, I, 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 let me tell you a little short story. I, I was going to Mount Sac and... Uh, Doing, doing all of this protest. And I had a big natural and wearing dashikis and I was militant in all of this, you know, and, and uh, I was getting, you know, thinking I'm learning. I got all these books in front of me and I'm coming home and I'm talking all this revolutionary talk to my wife and how smart I am. And my wife, uh, Sue's mother was super intelligent. She could type up, I mean, some phenomenal amount of words a minute. She could do shorthand. 
she and she could always get a job and her mother was the same way so she she one she decided well i'm going to show him that he's not the smartest thing in this house she <laughs> took one semester at mount sack and made a's and everything that shut me up real quick <laughs> 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 she was a phenomenal lady, but that was a beautiful time for 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 learning and 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 experiencing life. Like this time now, this that was history, and it's a good thing. Now I can talk to to Sue's grandson, uh, Caleb, and uh, I'm putting a thing together now with about the Tuskegee Airmen. Ah. One of the Tuskegee Airmen was from my hometown, a pilot named Wendell Pruitt, uh-huh. a big hero and a, a, a extremely talented flyer during World War II. And, uh, and his, his, I knew about him as a kid. And, you know, the war ended and I was, what, nine years old. So I knew about the war and everything. And uh, his family, I didn't go to school with any of his family members, but Sue's mother did. And they were considered heroes also. So we were a tight community. I didn't know any of the Pruitts, but they were a beautiful family, a, a, a hero. Uh, accepted as heroes in our community, and they even named they built a, a a a building project and named it after him, the Window Pruitt Project. It has since been torn down, but that was an honor. So that's basically what all the '60s was about. You mentioned that um, it was because uh, in the '60s that white there were white people that helped the protests, that there was recognition of mm-hmm. what the protests was about. You don't see that this time. There's a difference. That's the difference that you see. This time? Yeah. Right now? Yeah. No, no, it's the same. Oh, okay. So you feel like it's more, it's more, it's more, it's more, it's more white people out there now. That's why we're getting the attention that we do. Now the people, America is seeing white people knock down and drug and hit. You know, when they, when they were doing it to, to, to black people, let me tell you something. Let me tell you one thing. Way back in St. Louis when I was a little boy, they integrated the public swimming pools. There's a park called Fairground. My mother, again, who was an activist, took me, I don't know how old it was. I couldn't have been no more than seven, eight, nine at the most to go get in this pool along with another mother, Miss Dawson, and her son was named Billy. We went to this park, these two ladies and these two boys. And as we walked into the park, this crowd of men came towards us, white men came towards us, and forced us out of the park, wouldn't let us go swimming. And the only reason that they didn't do us harm is because they probably thought my mother was white, you see, and they were two ladies and two kids, you see. Now, let me tell you this. There was one person out of this group. I don't, I was a little kid, so, you know, I don't remember exactly. I just remember was a, a, a bunch of white young men. But one person there was an older person. And he was a wino. You know, a wino, the person, what we used to call, now they call them homeless or alcoholics and things. But in them mm-hmm. days, we called them winos. Now, I have learned, since learned and thought, figured out, he lived in the park because he didn't have a home or nothing. So he was there. And he was the loudest one in the group. Now, he is the bottom of the boys that he was with. But now he feels, felt he was higher than us. He's the bottom of the rung of the ladder in his own community. But this person, Wino, who lives on the street, felt that he was superior to us. I felt that as a little kid, 
nine years old uh-huh. and is on the side of that park. Now, what makes that so significant is that the next morning in the local paper, which is the St. Louis Post, they had a front page picture of this black boy sitting on the curb, but they had beat blood everywhere. They beat the kids to keep them from going in that park at, 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 at uh, fairground, at any park, but that's the park that uh, we went to. And that's in North St. Louis where we weren't allowed to live at that time. Now, let's, that was just, I, that's something I went back to in yeah. St. Louis. And that had to be, let's see, if I was nine, oh, that's 1945, 19, 1946. And that's the experience that we had. We couldn't go into nothing, you know, but again, we had our own community. You know, uh, uh, we, you know of course, you, you didn't like being denied. I'll tell you something else. The only restaurant we could go into was Howard Johnson's in St. Louis. And the reason we could do that, because it was inside of Union Station where the trains come in and out. And that was federal. And federal, you, oh. couldn't, you couldn't discriminate among oh. federal. Tell you something else. My father worked for Monsanto Chemical Company, the company that makes Roundup that's being sued now. He worked for them. He went to his supervisor and asked him uh, uh, how could he advance in the company. And it's what he told me. He said, it's what I told him, say, long as you work here and stay black, you'd be a custodian the rest of your life if you stayed here. You see? So then, but when, the, when, the, when Monsanto got a government contract, that they had to stop that procedure because it's federal government oh. during World War II. So he was able to move. We also had a school in our neighborhood called Rankin, which taught, uh, give uh, uh, people job skills. And the owner of that school said he didn't want black people nowhere and not even working in there, not alone going there, no work or nothing. He wouldn't allow black people to come to school. Now, this school was right in the middle of our neighborhood. I saw white people going in and out. Matter of fact, it was right down the street from where my father had his businesses. I saw white people going in there all the time until he got a contract with the government. And then he had to change. So these mm-hmm. kind of things happened during the civil rights movement. Now, I, got, I doubt if old man Rankin probably dropped dead when <laughs> when they had to take in blacks, but that's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you see the, so you do see the similarity then between it's, it sounds like, um, and unfortunately this still being the case that black people's voices aren't necessarily heard unless white people are joining in. They're heard, but they ignored. Right. And then yeah. with time, they, they'll, 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 they'll bring it. A good example, like in St. Louis, they didn't have black politicians until a certain time in my life. We even had Wayman Smith, who lived uh, right down the street from where we lived. He was a councilman, you know. And when you started participating in the pol- political system or any other system, then you have a voice. Like they used to say, you don't have a seat at the right. table, you don't understand it. My father used to say about playing golf. He said, it's not about going and playing at the golf course, him being a businessman. He said, a lot of business deals are consummated on, on the golf course. So he's thinking about it from a business standpoint, not just going out there and being able to get a ball and chase it. He's thinking yeah. at it from a, from a business standpoint. So it's the same thing with politics. As we get into politics, John Lewis and, and uh, Adam Clayton Powell and Thurgood Marshall, all these brilliant people that, that were there, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the ladies, uh, oh, Monday, 84, Chisholm, Shirley Chisholm. Oh, yeah. 
beautiful, beautiful people spoke. She's beautiful. the first woman who ran for president, right? That's right. Yes. That's right. Uh huh. That's right. And and her own Democratic Party turned. Of course, women had problems also. Do we under? Do we know that? <laughs> <laughs> of course, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, all of those things were happening. But now getting back to present time, now when, when and we have a lot of white people out there, you know, uh, uh, protesting, and the world is seeing it, and it's going to make a change. It's going to be a change. So you're it hopeful. Takes time. Hmm? Yeah, you're hopeful. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you, you know, it, just, it happens. Just like when, 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 when they ended slavery after 200 years, that's a long time to be in bondage. They try to make a movie out of it, you know, going with the wind, you know, uh, that black lady happy and all of that. But right. you know, it was a, that was a terrible time when they could just beat you or do whatever you want. They didn't kill you because you were property. So uh, they didn't want to kill you because then they would, that means that they have destroyed their property, somebody to work and somebody else couldn't kill them, but they could beat you half to death or do whatever they want to do with you, you see? They could do that then. And then it, when they ended slavery or long come emancipation, well, they changed it to Jim, Jim Crow. Right. You can't vote. How many jelly beans are in this, 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 right. this jar? You know, things like that. And intimidating. And, and Sheriff Clark down in Selma, Alabama, right. standing up in front of you with a, with a prod and, 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 you know, you can't do anything, you know. So, and then progress from that. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying progress. Progress is only on the person that you're moving up towards. Now, if I take one step, the person that I'm moving toward takes two steps, that's no progress. I'm progressing from where I was, but I'm not progressing in society as far as yeah. the, the, my superior is concerned. What were your thoughts about President Obama getting elected? <laughs> you know what? I sat there in, 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 in my house and he was in Springfield, Illinois, Illinois, and we used to go up there as a kid to, a, we call it the beach, it was a lake. And I never thought we were going until we were on the road with my parents and us, you know, cause it was a big deal to go to this lake. And I saw him, uh, 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 him make that statement and I said to myself and whoever was in the room, boy, you wasting your time. They are not going to elect you. <laughs> I had no idea, you know. Now, you know what I believe? Getting back to 1954. Now, that's what I believe is the basis for him being elected. Because now, all of a sudden, 1954, white kids started going to, to school with black kids, and they get to finding out all that stuff that their crazy uncle and their mothers and grandparents and fathers and grandmothers, that's not necessarily true about these people. Mm. See what I'm saying? Okay, so mm -hmm. now I can. Uh, he's not. They're all not bad people, you know. They're not all welfare queens and drug dealers and and criminals, you know. They're not all that. But that's what we were up until 1954. Right. See what I'm saying? And I'm gonna tell you something else about 1954. When, I, like I said, I was a bartender. Now, when jazz came into being in St. Louis, got popular. There were white clubs playing jazz and there were black clubs playing jazz. White musicians wanted to know about this new swing jazz. So they started coming to the black clubs. Now, we weren't allowed in their clubs before that. Now they could come, any white person could come to a black club anywhere in the city if they wanted to with no problem. But we couldn't go there. But then music 
brought it about. At the same time, when they had poem, their poetry, and they put it together, which I thought was very vulgar. I guess it was the time when people thought they could use a lot of profanity, which, you know, I didn't appreciate. But it brought the two music people together. That was from 1954. Tell you another story about white people. At that time, when they came, we had a disc jockey that would come to our nightclub. It was called a Toast of the Town Cocktail Lounge. Bill and Nawasa's Toast of the Town. And uh, it was a very exclusive place. We had nice carpet and mirrors and tables and blonde furniture. And we had live entertainment. A big a jazz musician that went on to have a, a name in New York. So and then we also had a disc jockey named Jesse Spider Burke. And he got the name Spider because he played basketball in college and, and he was like a spider. And uh, he would broadcast from the from the from the place on Saturday for four hours from twelve to four. Now he had a following. And they the only time the wifey would come in there is on that Saturday to follow him. Now some of them would come in with the attitude, look at me. I, 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 I accept these black people as my friend. Those are the ones that say, one of my best friends is colored. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And they really, they really, but they'll say, they'll tell you that, but the rest of them, I don't want to have anything to do with. You see? And then the ladies would come in and they felt like they were superior. They had this, they didn't even know how to hide it. They didn't know how to hide it. They just, it was just there. That's racism. And then when you tell them that's racist, oh, I'm not, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. But I tell you, the police have been killing us and beating us. All black people lying. That's racist. All black people don't lie. But that's racist. But they'll say, oh, I'm not racist. But that's another story. I, we so appreciate it. I really, <laughs> we're really liking your stories. Um, okay, I have to jump in and sort of diverge a little bit. Did you watch the debates, the last debate? with? President? I watched them, yes. And did you? <laughs> I was just pointed out some of your comments. What did you think when President Trump said he's the least racist person? Uh, uh, I, you know, you know. Uh, uh, let me let me see how I can state this. Uh, President Trump is the biggest buffoon I've ever seen in my life. I mean, that covers a lot of people. He is so ignorant that it's ridiculous that he is even uh, not only president walking on this earth with money in his pocket. You know. He is the most obnoxious person I've ever seen. And he believes this. You know, I mean, it's, I not, it's not that he, you know, I have to say he believes because he said it a bunch of times. Right. And he tried to qualify it. And he thinks, oh, oh, well, I can't say that because some black people might vote for me. So I have to remember Lincoln, you know. <laughs> what about what about Charles Sumner from my high school? What about Bashan? What about all the other abolitionists? You know, what about all of these people? What about LBJ, you know, who passed the civil rights law? What about these people? He's an idiot. <laughs> you mentioned you were really skeptical when President Obama was running and that you just yeah. didn't think there was any way he was going to be elected. So that when he was elected, what went through your mind when he was actually elected president? Well, long before he was actually elected, I, was, I watched it all the way through it. I saw him, him building and building and building and building and, and building. And then, of course, I still didn't have a full heart on it. You know, I didn't think it was going to happen. I didn't think it was going to happen until the final vote came in. But then, like everybody else, and right now, 
I could tear up. I mean, I get so emotional. You see, I mean, can you imagine seeing, seeing people killed and then all of a sudden, in a very short time, he's president of the United States of America, a brilliant man. This is, no, this is not a clown that we have in there now. Do you, did, do you, did you happen to see the, uh, the time he met with the senators shortly after being uh, sworn in? He met with a bunch of Republican senators at, at, at the White House to, 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 uh, to, for them to ask them questions. You probably can Google that or something. And it was, I was so proud of him. He sat there and answered every one of their questions because they, they asked dumb questions, you know, uh, thinking they were going to trap him, you know, just yeah. just like uh, uh, the Pharisees did with, with Jesus, asked him, well, what are you going to do about taxes? Well, uh, give the, the, the czar what he got coming and give Jesus what he has. He had a quest, an answer for everything. That means he, he's aware. But Obama, <laughs> I am so proud of him, his wife, his children, his yeah. mother-in-law, his father-in-law. He's the perfect. Here's a man they all, white people tell you all the time, lift yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, is there any other more bootstrap being lifted up than all the way from, from, from Hawaii yeah. to a, 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 a organizer in Chicago to the presidency of the United States of America and handle it with no scandal? He's a very respectable, educated, brilliant man. Best man we've had in the job since since uh, Carter. Carter was a good man too. I I am so proud of of. of for, I I can take this to my grave. I can talk. I have a son, Glenn, Sue's Sue's uh, brother. He and I talk all the time. He gets so passionate. I can't understand some of the words he's saying. He gets so passionate when he's talking about politics. I, he just loves it, and he's. It's just that it, it's, this is a beautiful time to be alive, but it's gonna be some serious changes made. If, if Democrats can get rid of those Republicans in Congress, we're gonna see some very fast moving changes in government. Of course, now we have lost the Supreme Court for the next 30, 40 years, but I'm hoping they add some more Supreme Courts, put some more people in there, do whatever. They gotta start playing nasty like the Republicans. <laughs> Democrats are so nice and cheesy and- but they won't. <laughs> No, they won't, they yeah. just, They'll play it. Well, we know we got to do this. And the Republicans are always talking about moral this and moral that. How come they how come they don't use their Bible to help the poor? How come they don't do a lot mm -hmm. of things that the Bible asked them to do? The only thing, like 70 to 80 percent of the Republicans still back in Trump. Christians I'm talking about, evangelicals or whatever that yeah. name is, still back in Trump. When would you say you became a Christian? When, when Sue's mother died and nine years later I remarried. And uh, I'm married to a, a Christian lady, and I tell everybody, she don't ever have to be talking about being born again. She's been a Christian all her life, from the time she was a, a little girl all the way up to now. And she's in a church here in Upland. Now, she's been in this church over, over 45 years. She's been in this particular church. And she's the oldest participating member, not oldest in age, but the oldest member that has been going to that church. She's the oldest, the one that's been going to that church the longest. We had a Mr. Got there. He died a couple of months ago. It was between them two. Now she is. So then she asked me, huh? She asked me one, one, one uh, Easter, would I like to go to a sunrise service, which they have every Easter morning, and, except this past. And I went. And, I, you know, 
You know, I told you I only had one white friend in my life prior to leaving St. Louis. I've come back and forth. And then in the Army, maybe two at the most at one time. And and one of them was really somebody else's friend. We were just together. But then I came to California, and I had one or two when I worked with the gas company. Then I went with the Times. I had no friends there that I would call friends. I had associates that I worked with. See, right. then I met I met this lady that uh, I'm married. To. We've been married 12 years now, and my life is rounded out. And let me tell you, my first wife was named Doris. Guess what? My third wife was named Doris. Huh. And and Sue's daughter Laura, she tell, told told if you tell her friends, if you got any friends named Doris, don't bring them around my grandfather. He'll marry them. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, getting back to it, I went to this church and I met some truly, for the first time in my life, I have about six white friends. Never had that many friends in my life. And I'm 84 years old. And this is maybe but 12, 12 years since I've been going to this church. 11 years, maybe 10, you know. Don and Ron and Mike and, and Bruce and just good people. We never discussed race. We never discussed none of that. None of that comes up. They treat me decently, and I treat, you know, we, we get along. Now, we got one fellow there that from the day one, he's been trying to show me how liberal he is and how he's not prejudiced. You know what that tells me? <laughs> you don't have to explain that to me if you're not that. You know, you don't have to tell me. You know, I know where you are. We, we as a people coming along in this world, we had to study white people. We had to know white people inside and out. We can't, if you know, if if we can't smile when we're not supposed to smile, we can't look angry, we can't be mad, we can't be aggressive. We die for that. That'll kid get you killed, you know. So we had to study the emotions of white people. We had to know what their actions are, and they don't even know they're showing it half the time. And I just treat them, you know, this fellow like he he's the one that asked me, uh, did you see the movies of the of the, the Tuskegee Airmen? I told him, no, I said, I didn't see the movies. It's because, you know, movies have a tendency to make the white man the hero. I say I knew about the pilots when I was a young boy. I learned about them. We had a pilot in St. Louis that I told you about. Of course, he was a little backwards with that. He didn't know how to take it, you know, because he's not a, a fair person. You see, and I picked that out of him. Every Sunday, he'd be in my face telling me about how liberal he was. And he has a black friend and, you know, and all of that. That warned me about him from the start. Now, I treat him fair. He has the sweetest little wife. You know, she she came to Bible study the other day, and I took her home. I, I take care of the uh, tidings and the prayer cards, and I help out with, with the gardening. I'm too old for that now, but before I got too old, I'd help out with the garden because I like the church and the people. It's not a lot of people, but they're just good people, and I, that's my first real experience with a group. Okay. <laughs> How do you think that your relationship with white people has changed you? Because you grew up in a very black neighborhood and had, you know, pretty negative experiences with white people. Um, how do you think having Ron and Don and I forgot the other guy's name as yeah. friends has changed you? Do you think? You know, like I told you about, about, uh, uh, white people thinking about black people, mm -hmm. the thoughts they have. Mm -hmm. I had the same thoughts about white people, all white people. 
Mm-hmm. You know, even 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 at the temple when I went to temple way back in the fifties, but Minister Clyde X would say they're all the blue eyed devils. Right. You see, they they go around they they put their Bible in your face and they tell you this and then they cut your throat. And in reality, that's what they did. You know, not all of them, but you right. know, just like they looked at us, I looked at them until I went to this church. Now I had these people like the one or two. That was an exception. I didn't even identify with them as white people. They were my friends. Mm. You see, they just happened to be white, like Carlo, the boy that Italian that fixed the pizzas. Beautiful person. He was a little older than me, maybe a year or two older. But we got along so good. You know, he had a little I never met his family, but he had a little family. And then of course then I got drafted into the army a year later and I left him. But oh. uh it, my daughter's here. I have, to, I have to be careful what I say. <laughs> I didn't say. I did not say anything. <laughs> no, but I, I, right? You know, I, I found out that all white people are not bad. No. Yeah. But I thought that for a long time. I wouldn't even give them an opportunity to be good. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What would you ask of the church of Christians right now, if you had the opportunity to, you know? Talk to your church. Your church. What would you say? First thing I do is I would ask them to understand that I'm not talking personally to them. But let's practice what you're telling me to practice. Let's do what Jesus said. You know, you're so wrapped up in abortion and justifiably so. But you're not. And you've been you've been fighting that battle ever since 1974. You've been fighting the abortion battle. If you fought for the poor and the handicapped, that's another point. And keep my point about the poor and, and the handicapped. The Republican Party took away money from the handicapped people. This 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 last president taking money from handicapped. Not only from the handicapped, taking money from from the program that feed poor kids. But the church is saying nothing about that. Yeah. But they're hard on abortion. They've been talking about abortions ever since 1974 when the law was passed. See, so let's 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 do it all. If you you talk about we brothers, and 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 you want you want to Jesus to live like Jesus, and that's my point. I say I'm not. I don't know about being born again. I don't know about the paradise. I don't know about heaven. I just know if I lived a good life here according to the Bible. Then there's nothing going to happen. I'll 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 maintain a, a decent life. My children will be happy. My grandchildren will be happy. My great grandchildren will be happy. As long as I live the life with the Bible says. And I want all Christians to live the life of the Bible, not just parts of it that fit their particular yeah. thoughts and what have you. Live it all, and then we'll all be happy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna take this on the road. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> I think it's a message that that should be said. Amen. <laughs> Mr. William Collins. <laughs> what was your Austin? Was that the middle name? Yeah, Austin. William Austin Collins the second. I don't like Junior. It has been such a pleasure to spend this Good, half hour too. with you. Thank yes. you so much for coming. Thank you. Talking with us. Thank you.